Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. When Pastor Clark Cawthon was five years old, he thought that college presidents were powerful and frightening beings. That is, until one day that one stooped low enough to spend time with him. He writes, What I saw of college presidents I only saw from floor level. As I played on the other side of my mother's desk in the administration building at Grand Canyon College in Phoenix, Arizona. My mom was dean of the women at that time. I would watch as students slowly walk down the hall towards the president's office and stop. They would rub their sweaty palms on their pants or skirts, take a deep breath, straighten their shoulders and knock. The door would creak open. That's when I would catch a glimpse of the president's shiny black wingtip shoes. A steady, strong hand would reach through and shake the trembling hand of the student. The student would then disappear inside the mysterious chamber known as the president's office. I figured walking into that room must be pretty much like going before the throne of judgment. It was a terrifying thought, that is, until the day the president stooped into my world. I was playing with my toy car in the hall outside his office when the door opened, and suddenly there were those, those shiny black wingtip shoes. The next thing I knew, President Robert Sutherland, the biggest man on campus, dressed in his pinstripe three-piece suit, knelt down. He placed the knee of his crisply creased trousers on the hallway floor and asked, may I have a turn? After we played cars together, President Southern asked if I would do him the favor of calling him Dr. Bob. That's the day my opinion about college presidents changed. Of that encounter, Clark Carthen writes, I can see how some people might think God is a powerful and frightening being. Yet after I met him, my opinion changed about him too. The Bible tells us that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When he stooped into my world, Dr. Bob helped me understand that verse a little bit better. We're going to see God stoop again this morning. But this time it's not to play with an innocent child, but to save a guilty woman. What Jesus does is rather remarkable. First of all, he does two things. And right there you have a summary of his entire ministry. He first of all disturbs the comfortable, and then he comforts the disturbed. Look at verse 5 with me. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. We learned last week that if someone was caught in the sin of adultery, they were to be stoned. But sometimes it was even worse than that. You're thinking, what could possibly be worse than that? Well, history tells us sometimes if a couple was taken in adultery, they would be taken to the center of town where a square wooden box would be built. And in that box, cow manure would be piled three feet high. They would then be put into the middle of that manure with a cloth wrapped around each of their necks. Then someone on each side would pull on the cloth 
until they were strangled. And then they were pushed over face first into the manure. That would then be the site of their burial. A tree would then be planted directly over them that grew right in the center of town. Why? Well, hopefully so that when kids would ask about it, they could be warned of the shady things that had happened, pun intended. In the text before us, the first thing Jesus has to address is the sanctity of God's law that was given to Moses. If you read the Gospels, you will always see that Jesus always treats God's law for what it is, and that is perfect and righteous. The law has never been the problem. We are the problem, and the problem with the law concerning us is twofold. One, while it is perfect, we are not. It is the perfect ruler against all of us crooked sticks are placed against. And secondly, the law had been perverted by the religious leaders of Jesus' day to serve them instead of them serving the law. But regardless, the law is still perfect, and the law said that adultery was a stonable offense. With devilish insight, these men had hit upon the problem of all problems in respect to the relationship of a sinner with God Almighty, and that is this. How can God show love to the sinner without being unjust? Or as Paul stated the problem, how can God be both the just and the justifier of the ungodly? From a human point of view, this problem is unsolvable. In this, the rulers were right. I'm sure they were thinking, even if Jesus wants to show love and grace, he cannot. But they were not aware that they were not dealing with a mere man they, when they dealt with Jesus. They were dealing with God. And with God, all things are possible. But in some sense, you have to appreciate the trap that they have set for Jesus. If Jesus said, stone her, he would jeopardize his position as a friend of sinners. Prostitutes and publicans, tax collectors and street people would no longer feel comfortable around him knowing that he had sentenced one of their own to death. If, on the other hand, he said, let her go, he would be dishonoring the word of God that he had come to fulfill. But these people didn't see the true purpose of what the law was meant to do. It was never intended to be our savior. It was intended to show us our need for a savior as none of us can perfectly keep the law. The story of Hagar provides illumination about my failure. For in the Galatians 4 passage, Paul says not only is Ishmael a type of the flesh and Isaac a type of the spirit, but Hagar is a type of the law and Sarah a type of the new covenant. Hagar represents Mount Sinai where the law was given, while Sarah represents the heavenly Mount Zion from whence grace flows. However, my natural tendency is to say the best way to deal with my flesh is to lay down the law. I'm going to set up rules and regulations to keep my flesh in check. But whenever I do that, I am bound to fail badly. Why? Because although rules and regulations might be wonderful, 
I cannot consistently keep them. Oh, for a while I might be able to, during which in time, in pride, I can say to you, what's wrong with you? Why is your Ishmael running about so wildly? Why can't you deal with the flesh like I have? But eventually I will fail under the weight of my own rules, and I will fail miserably. Then I'll say, I was doing so well for three days or three months or even three years, but then I blew it. So why even go to Bible study? Why even go to church? Why pray? I'm a failure. The Lord will never use me. This is why the law doesn't work. It either makes you a self-righteous prude or a self-condemned dude or dudette, as the case may be. It causes us to say either, what's wrong with you or what's wrong with me? So what's the answer? Do what Abraham did. Send Hagar away and embrace only Sarah. Don't put yourself or others under regulation and rules. Rather, hold fast to the new covenant and walk in grace. The point is, we all need a Savior. And that's clearly seen in this case of the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. But make no mistake about it. Jesus himself upheld the Old Testament condemnation of adultery. In fact, he made the prohibition stronger, condemning not only the physical act, but also the lustful attitude that conceives it. So please never think that Jesus is soft on any kind of sin. The reason why he died was to save us from such sins. Here's the issue we are faced with this morning. We have to be careful not to count sexual misconduct too lightly or too heavily. Jesus never ever says adultery is not a sin. And don't forget the word adultery means any kind of sex outside of marriage. The Bible teaches that sex is a way of expressing to someone else absolute, complete, exclusive, and permanent commitment. That's the reason the Bible says that sex is only for a man and a woman inside the bonds of marriage. And only, by the way, between a man and a woman. The Bible says sex was invented as God's way of us saying to someone else, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you and to only you. That's why it's supposed to be only for marriage. And the reason for that is the Bible tells us sex is a perfect oneness and a picture of the intimacy that we will have with God one day in heaven. And that intimacy and oneness never, ever comes apart from total commitment. God doesn't give us his intimacy unless we completely commit to him as he is already completely committed to us. And therefore, the picture we are given is sex doesn't work outside our relationship of that total commitment. In any other arena, in any other area, it is deadly and dangerous. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? Those verses, of course, apply to men and women. What are they saying? Lust outside of the context of marriage can be dangerous 
and even deadly. It's like fire in a fireplace. As you know, I like fires probably a little too much. But there are a few things as comforting as curling up to a blazing fire on a winter's day with a good book and a cup of hot chocolate. But if you take that same fire and move it just six inches onto the carpet, that was, which was once beautiful and comforting, now becomes dangerous and possibly lethal. This is why God has reserved sex for marriage only. And if you're not married, you're basically just keeping your options open. And you're refusing to be totally vulnerable to that other person. Therefore, what God says here is adultery is definitely a very serious, serious thing because it can destroy your ability to trust someone else. It can destroy your ability to open yourself up to someone. Now, in the beginning, if you had sex outside of marriage, you felt married. And in the process of having sex, you wanted to make vows of absolute fidelity, except in the end, you most likely didn't as you moved on to someone else. The Bible says, therefore, that sex outside of the bonds of marriage is very serious. But the Bible is also showing us don't make it too serious. What do I mean? You just told us it can become a blazing and deadly inferno. How is that not serious? It is serious, but it is not unforgivable. There are societies that will say sexual sin is worse than other kinds. Sexual sin is creepy. Sexual sin in your past makes you somebody who is now going to have to be a second-class Christian. No way. God goes out of his way in Matthew chapter 1 to show us that both Rahab the harlot and Tamar the incestuous were both included in the line of the Messiah. God goes out of his way to show us that prostitutes and tax collectors were making it into the kingdom of heaven before the religious leaders. And so if there's anybody who says, I'm too bruised sexually to come to him, he won't take me. Then you don't understand the gospel of grace yet. He's waiting for you. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he brings judgment unto victory. This is the message of Christianity. We are told next that Jesus stoops down on the ground and starts scribbling in the dust like he's never heard them. The question that has been debated over the centuries is, what did Jesus write in the dust? I do not know what he wrote on the ground. And what's more, I don't believe anyone else knows what he wrote on the ground. I've read numerous commentaries on these verses, and I've been surprised that many of them give a completely different answer. Some have suggested that Jesus wrote on the ground to gain time. I mean, these guys think they have him. They have asked him a very clever question, and they are sure he is completely stumped at this point. And so he's just trying to buy some time as he thinks up a good answer. Now, that would have worked with me. I would have been writing on the ground praying, Oh, Lord, help me, help me, help me, help me. I don't know what to say to these people. And if you're anything like me, you probably figure out a snappy comeback about three days later. And you say, What I should have said was thus and so. Others argue that he did so to force his accuser to repeat their charges, 
thinking that perhaps the shame of the situation might become evident to them even as they said it. So what did Jesus write that would cause these men to become so heavily convicted? I suggest perhaps what he wrote was in fulfillment of Jeremiah 17, 13, where Jeremiah prophesied that all the names of all who forsook the Lord would be written in the earth. Maybe he wrote the names of those who held rocks in their hands, and by each name, a female name, a date, and a place. Or some other reminder of something in their past that they themselves may have long ago forgotten. Or maybe Jesus wrote the New Testament equivalent of a hotel room number and a date in which such an infraction may have occurred. Now, am I suggesting that all the scribes and the Pharisees there had committed adultery or that they were all involved in immorality? No. But what I do know is this. Jesus said if a man even looked upon a woman with lust in his heart, he was just as guilty of adultery as if he physically committed that act. Therefore, the words Jesus wrote on the ground were probably reminders that because none of them was without sin, none of them was qualified to cast a stone. Perhaps he wrote the words he would later speak to them. We just don't know. Whatever the case, the fact of Christ's writing had no effect on the rulers who rudely continued to press for an answer. You know, one of the sad effects of sin is that it hardens the sinner. Because we see that they will continue their inquisition in verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. This verse has been terribly misinterpreted and abused. It is a mantra of a culture that says, Nobody can tell me what I am doing is wrong because Jesus himself said, let you, who with, let you who is without sin cast the first stone. Ergo, no one has the right to tell me anything I am doing is wrong. Amen? Not amen, that's true. Amen, I had the brains to perceive that. The other verse is, judge not lest you be judged. These are the only two verses a lot of people know. But there is a hermeneutical principle that tells us that Scripture is to always be interpreted by other Scripture. So let me ask you, would God give us all of the warnings and commandments of Scripture, only have them canceled out by just two verses telling us not to worry about it? Well, of course not. Furthermore, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law so no one could justly accuse him of opposing his teachings or weakening its power. But by applying the law to the woman and not to themselves, the Jewish leaders were violating both the letter and the spirit of the law, and yet they thought they were actually defending Moses. Such is the blindness and the hardness of religion apart from grace. We know Romans 3.20 tells us the law was given to reveal sin. And so we must be condemned by the law before we can be cleansed by God's grace. You see, law and grace do not compete against each other. Instead, they complement each other. 
Nobody was ever saved by keeping the law, but nobody was ever saved by grace who was not first indicted by the law. Simply put, there must be conviction before there can be conversion. The silence that day was broken by the words that Jesus spoke. And where there remains some ambiguity as to exactly what he wrote in the sand, there's no doubt about the meaning of what he said. As the scribes and Pharisees frowned and stared, John tells us Jesus rose to his feet and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Talk about shock. Such an incisive answer must have hit them like a fist in the face. In fact, the text literally reads in the Greek, The sinless one of you first on her, let him cast a stone. That's awkward in the English, but it's emphatic in the Greek. In so many words, Jesus said, The first one I invite to throw a stone at is the sinless one. But just be sure you have no sins against you. And then you're qualified to bring shame, accusation, and even death to this woman. Only make sure your hearts are completely pure and absolutely sinless. So go ahead and throw a stone at her if you want. Pass judgment. Condemn her. It's your call. Just make absolutely sure you are sinless yourself. And just remember this, sinful people are in no position to throw stones. Have you ever heard that saying that those who live in glass houses should never throw rocks? This is the New Testament version of that. Now, this is not popular, but we are as a race guilty sinners. The light of God has caught all of us with our hands in the moral cookie jar. And we are very proficient at sin. We sin by what we do. And we sin by what we don't do. We sin with our attitudes. We sin with our thoughts. We sin with our tongues. We sin with our hands. We sin with our feet. We sin with our eyes. You're getting the picture. Maybe you can appreciate the prayer I read this week. It goes like this. Dear God, so far today I've done all right. Haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been grumpy, nasty, or selfish. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Thank you and amen. All of us sin from time to time. Even Pastor Bill sins, just not as much as you. You're thinking other than pride and arrogance, maybe. But we do what naturally comes to us. Sin flows out of our fallen nature. And that's good to remember. If, like me, you can sometimes be critical and ultra-judgmental of other people. So Jesus gets up and he never actually says, don't throw a stone, does he? He says, sure, throw a stone. But make sure the one who does it is without any kind of sin. He never denies that there needs to be punishment. He doesn't say anything about capital punishment. 
As a side note, in the New Testament, capital punishment for adultery had been abolished. You can go to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians and see how Paul deals with the man who was living with his father's wife and see what he deals with there. But in this situation, Jesus says nothing about capital punishment one way or the other. He doesn't defend it, and he doesn't attack it. Instead, what he does, and it's very wise, he basically makes this case. He says, you are disqualified from being witnesses or executioners. See, what he's doing, he's not saying anything about capital punishment, whether it's right or wrong in the situation. He completely walks aside of that. He says, in any case, you are not qualified to be executioners or witnesses. Why not? Well, how does he do this? I believe I've already alluded to this. The Jewish law knew that capital punishment was an easily abused penalty, and therefore it was absolutely almost impossible to actually convict someone of this capital offense. What the Jewish law did it was it made it extremely, extremely difficult to do it. The Jewish law required that for someone to be convicted of any type of capital offense, there had to be at least two eyewitnesses who not only saw it as eyewitnesses, but in their testimony under cross-examination, there had to be absolute and total agreement. The Mishnah, which is the Jewish commentary on the law, said a court that executed more than one person every seven years was a slaughterhouse. So in order for this woman to be caught in adultery, she virtually had to be set up. She essentially had to be entrapped. The evidence for that, as we said last week, is where was the man? You see, if two people had actually seen this woman commit adultery, then the man would also have to have been there. And the Old Testament law is absolutely clear that the man and the woman both have to be executed. There can be no double standard. The Old and New Testaments are absolutely against what is called partiality in justice. The Old and New Testaments are absolutely abhor the idea that you'd have partiality towards the rich versus the poor or men against women. The fact these people came with this woman and said, we saw her, but the man is not there, essentially proves to us that there was entrapment. And there was prejudice, and quite possibly the man engineered it. The man who did it could possibly have been in that crowd. But not only that, the law of Moses also, in this instance, demands a trial. But instead of a trial, they bring her out publicly and make her stand in the midst of the people in public humiliation. So what does Jesus do? Jesus turns to them and says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. What's he doing? What's he saying? Now, he is not saying what a lot of people have thought, what many, many movie makers have thought, that it is only a sinless person who could ever punish someone. That's ridiculous. Not only that, these men who were there would never have been convicted by that type of statement. Instead, what he is saying is, I know you, and the very law of Moses you invoke you are at the same time breaking. What they understood him to say was probably this. The law against adultery and the sin of adultery is fine. But what about you? So first of all, what he's saying is your hypocrisy is a stench 
in the nostrils of God. Yes, you invoke the law of Moses, but what about the law against conspiracy? What about the law against partiality and injustice? What about the law against sexual misconduct you have entertained in your own heads? He says, I do not deny the law of Moses, but by the law of Moses, I deny that you are qualified to be witnesses or executioners. It's an ingenious stroke. It's an absolute stroke of wisdom, and they're cut to the heart, and next week we will see that they will just file out. By the way, the oldest first, because as time goes on, you're usually more willing to admit your faults. When you reach my age, you have failed so many times, it's very difficult to convince yourself that everyone else is actually the problem. But that's another sermon. But he's got them. He nailed them to the wall. You see, friends, because they wouldn't name their sin, Jesus dealt with them first. What that teaches us is if you don't name your sin, Jesus will have to name it for you. If you say a word of peace to yourself when you're guilty, Jesus will condemn you. But if you say, as we'll see next week, you repent and say, I'm condemned, Jesus will say, no, now you're at peace. But if you don't name your sin, Jesus will name it for you. Look at how he treats these two types of people differently. If you say, I'm all right, he'll say condemned. If you say, I'm condemned, he'll say, no, you're all right. I've taken your condemnation. That is the heart of Christianity. So come to him. He's waiting. Let's pray. Father, all we ask now is you would help us to see what it means to go to you with our bruises, to go to you with our needs, to go to you with our weaknesses. We thank you that if we come and say we're all right, you'll send us away condemned. But if we come and say we're condemned, you'll send us away saying, no, because of me, you're all right. What a matchless gospel. What an incredible religion. And it's all because of the cross. On the cross, you're able to save us and condemn evil at the same time. Now, Father, we pray that everyone here will see we can come to you and we can have that healing. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.